0: Our first scripture reading this morning is going to be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 16 through 21. I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters. I am calling forth mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses, and I drew them beneath the waves, and they drowned, and their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candlewick. But forget all that; it is nothing compared to what I am going to do. For I am going to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? I will make pathways through the wilderness, and I will create rivers in dry wastelands. The wild animals in the field will thank me, the jackals and owls too, for forgiving them the water in the desert. Yes, I will make rivers in the wasteland so that my chosen people can be refreshed. And I have made Israel for myself, and they will someday honor me before the whole world. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Uh, Our second scripture reading today is the 126th Psalm. We're looking at Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the deserts. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. The word of God for the people of God. It's also in thankfulness that I'm able to introduce our our guest preacher today, uh, who is one of my closest friends. Uh, I met her in seminary. She's preached with us before, uh, but every time I get to see her, which tends to either be her preaching here or playing a uh, washboard. Uh, It's kind of the way it tends to go these days. Uh, But every time I get to see her, it's a joy, and I'm so glad that she's come to bring this word for us. Uh, Catherine, can you please come speak?
2: Good morning. Thank you all so much for having me back and having me here today. And of course, we'll open with the word of God from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 1 through 25. Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming that he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, you have said it. Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. Then they became insistent, but he is causing riots by his teaching wherever he goes, all over Judea, from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate sent him to Herod Antipas, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your presence, and I find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done is a crime so I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him, and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he demanded, Why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death, so I will have him flogged and I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as the people demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. The word of God for the people of God. Well, if you've attended church for as many Palm Sundays as I have, that scripture probably felt a week early to you. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and every year on Palm Sunday, we would read the story of Jesus and Barabbas, and then put on a passion play during worship instead of a sermon. Each year, we would watch as Actor Jesus, typically portrayed by a burly choir member named Steve, was arrested, charged, tried, exonerated by Pilate, condemned by the people, and taken away to be crucified. As a congregation, we were also given a role to play. And when actor Pilate asked us which prisoner we wanted released, we shouted out in aggravated chorus, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. So coupled with Pentecost, this was one of the two times a year when we Episcopalians would really let our hair down and make some noise in church. That we could only do it after somebody gave us our lines. So for me, this gospel is a very familiar story. And as a child, I understood Jesus's arrest and subsequent trials as a means to an end, bringing about the crucifixion that led to Christ's resurrection. As an adult, though, I hear this story through different ears. Here we have a man who is arrested by people who are envious of his influence and challenged by his ideas. The man, Jesus, is brought before a judge, and he is found innocent of any wrongdoing. The people, however, do not want to hear it, and they insist that Jesus is a criminal. And his crime? He stirs up the people by teaching, they insist. Jesus, the liberator, the healer, the teacher, poses a real threat to the status quo, especially the power authority, and economic privilege enjoyed by the high priests and the agents of the Roman Empire. Jesus devotes his entire ministry to preaching about care for the least of these, equality of all, and the redistribution of wealth. And eventually this lands him in the hot seat of the court of public opinion. But the justice disagrees with the people, finding no crimes among their list of grievances. So Jesus is sent before a second judge, Herod, and again, though mocked and treated scornfully, Jesus is dismissed and returned to Pilate's court. I also find it interesting that the story tells us that Pilate and Herod had been enemies, but they became friends through their shared experience of trying Jesus. Perhaps a justice system capable of subverting justice must be of one accord. Standing once more in Pilate's court for a third hearing, Jesus is declared on multiple occasions by Judge Pilate to be guilty of nothing. Pilate's verdict is to release Jesus, but the will of the people persists. Finally, Pilate gives in to their demands and he hands Jesus, a man he, the judge, finds innocent of any crime over to be put to death. This story of Jesus, Barabbas, Pilate, and the people then is a documented account of injustice and corruption within the judicial system of first century Rome. A man deemed innocent in the eyes of the court is put to death because the will of the people prevails. Barabbas is the lesser of two evils, you see, for unlike Jesus, he does not pose a threat to those in power. Barabbas, imprisoned for murder, is the safer choice, the convenient choice, and the choice that ultimately trumps justice. Fast forward 2,000 years to 21st century America, and we find ourselves more beholden to Barabbas than ever. What is right, fair, and just is often superseded by that which is convenient, profitable, and unthreatening to the white, middle-class, heteronormative majority. Modern-day Barabbas, as an alternative to Jesus, is that which keeps us feeling safe, feeling comfortable, Barabbas favors the side of the oppressor by reminding us that we are still in control. And today, feeling in control seems to mean putting folks behind bars, separating families, imposing mandatory minimum sentences that prevent judges from even considering the special and specific circumstances surrounding each case, detaining innocent people for years as they await trial, and perpetuating deeply entrenched patterns of racial and class bias to keep the wealthy white power structure intact. Mass incarceration is the name of the game in postmodern America, which today claims the dubious honor of the world's highest incarceration rate. In fact, while the United States is home to only 5% of the world's prisoners, or forgive me, of the world's population, a 2018 survey finds that we house 25% of the world's prisoners. That's a staggering 2.3 million people imprisoned in the land of the free. But wait, I am a white, middle class, heterosexual American. This is for me, right? I was raised to feel grateful for our prisons and our jails. It's a system designed to keep me and my people safe from the bad guys. But who decides who is a bad guy? What constitutes a bad guy? Is a bad guy someone who commits a crime? Is it someone who couldn't afford a good attorney? Is a bad guy someone who's just different than me or someone I need to call criminal to maintain the current power structure? The past 150 years of American history illustrate a disturbing pattern of deciding which groups of people we want to oppress, observing their behaviors, and then criminalizing those behaviors. I'll be very real with you, this is not an easy or comfortable conversation. Questioning the way of things is often unpopular and difficult, especially with the people we know and love. Even Jesus had the hardest time ministering in his own town, isn't that right? Asking questions tends to give us new awareness, and this is uncomfortable because having new awareness then demands something from us. Let's roll the clock back a few years and look at an example. Here's some new awareness that was shown onto the Nixon administration in the mid-90s from Richard Nixon's own domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman. Now Nixon's presidential campaign took place on the heels of the civil rights movement, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and as the Vietnam War was reaching a fever pitch. The White House's number one enemies were black power and flower power. So the solution, the launch of a war on drugs. The Nixon administration marks the turning point when in one of the most ingenious acts of systemic oppression in our nation's history, America stopped viewing drug addiction as a public health crisis and went full court press on drug abuse as criminal act. In an interview given in 1994, Ehrlichman, who eventually himself served time in prison as a Watergate co-conspirator, admitted the inspiration for Nixon's war on drugs. And this is his exact quote from a taped uh, interview. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman said. We could arrest their leaders raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Of course we did. And the rest is history. Nixon's war on drugs still rages on today with little success, while the number of imprisoned Americans has skyrocketed from 300,000 in 1972 to the 2.3 million we are faced with today. And even within the war on drugs, racial bias looms large. Research shows marijuana used to be essentially equal among the white and black population, but blacks are arrested almost four times as often for marijuana possession. And at one point in recent history, the penalty for carrying one ounce of crack, smokable cocaine, and primarily an inner city or urban issue, was equal to the penalty for carrying 100 ounces of powder cocaine, which was largely a suburban white issue. Despite making up only 13% of the total US population, 70% of those in prison today are people of color. And one out of every 13 black Americans has lost the right to vote due to felony convictions. So there's the model. Decide who you want to oppress, criminalize their behaviors, and then strip them of their political voice forever so they can't take steps to improve their circumstance brilliant, calculating, and brutally effective. Forget about justice, give us Barabbas. And at this point, even if we wanted to pump the brakes and ease back on extreme legislation like mandatory minimums or decades-long sentencing for nonviolent crimes, we're in it too deep. The for-profit prison system is an economic game changer because our country is now filled with profit-driven prisons that only make money when they are full. State contracts even have a term for it. They call it an occupancy guarantee. Essentially, we've created a monster, a system that relies on the incarceration of millions to keep running. Full prisons mean free labor and high profit margins for the key stakeholders in the prison industry, and these key stakeholders wield tremendous influence over the political machine and the public opinion. For example, in 2010, the two largest private prison corporations earned a combined $3 billion in revenue, then turned around and spent $25 million of their profits to lobby against prison and judicial reform. Other examples include Horizon Healthcare, which is a company contracted to provide um, health services to people imprisoned, $1.4 billion industry. A commissary providing prisoners with the opportunity to purchase and supplement their inadequate meals. Uh, Most items are marked up at least 5%, and that's a $1.6 billion industry. The bail market in America is a $3 billion annual industry. And who said crime doesn't pay? Our system now requires, then, that a certain percent of our population has to end up behind bars. The only question left is who? And we already know the answer to that question. The criminals will be made from the ones who are too poor or vulnerable to fight back. Take, for example, Khalif Browder. Khalif was only 16 years old when he was eaten alive by the criminal justice system. Khalif was born with the deck stacked against him, but he made the most of the hand he was dealt. Although he was born into the custody of Child Protective Services because of his mother's drug addiction, young Khalif found a home with the Browder family who adopted him. He grew up in New York near the Bronx Zoo, made friends easily, got decent grades, liked Pokemon and pro wrestling, and was described by employees at the school he attended as a fun guy whom they thought was very smart. In May of 2010, 16-year-old Khalif and his friend were walking home from a party one evening when they were stopped by police officers searching for two black male suspects. Their alleged crime was stealing a backpack. The two young men were searched by police, and when the search turned up nothing, they might have been let go. The accuser, however, was in one of the police cars. Since the boys had no backpack, the accuser then alleged that the two young men had attempted to rob him. After officers cited the boys' empty pockets, their accuser then told police that the robbery had taken place several weeks earlier, though the date of the alleged robbery changed several times in conversations with police. So Khalif and his friend were arrested, taken to jail, and confronted with felony charges of grand larceny, robbery, and assault. Maintaining his innocence, Khalif was arraigned and ultimately charged with second-degree robbery. Bail was set at $3,000, which was a number his family could not begin to afford. So 16-year-old Khalif was sent to Rikers Island to await trial. Khalif Browder would spend the next three years of his life at Rikers Island, waiting to be tried for his alleged theft of a backpack. Two of those three years were spent in solitary confinement, with his longest stretch in solitary lasting 17 consecutive months. 17 months with no human interaction, spending 23 hours of each day alone in a tiny cell. Khalif was beaten, harassed, threatened, starved, tormented, and repeatedly isolated. He attempted suicide on three separate occasions just to free himself from the hell of Rikers. His court-appointed attorney never once visited him in prison to prepare their defense. You see, Khalif broke the rules. He defied the system by daring to argue his innocence. Khalif was repeatedly offered plea bargains, but he refused to plead guilty to a crime he did not commit. Instead, he called upon his right to trial. At one point, after more than two years in prison, a judge... I imagine desperately, even offered him a plea bargain that would result in his immediate release if he would only confess to the crimes. The sentence, time served. But Khalif politely declined and told the judge, I did not do it. I want to go to trial. Khalif was willing to sacrifice his freedom to preserve his integrity. He didn't break the law, he broke the rules. See, in Khalif's Bronx neighborhood in 2011, only 4% of all felony cases actually went to trial. The other 96% of cases saw the defendants issue a guilty plea, opting for the promise of a shorter sentence rather than rolling the dice on a trial, prison time awaiting trial, and the fear of those mandatory minimum sentences for felony crimes. But Khalif refused to play ball. Patiently, he endured a round-the-clock torment while he waited to exercise his right to trial. Finally, in May of 2013, at Khalif's 31st court appearance with no trial, the charges against him were simply dropped. His accuser had moved to another country, and without that testimony, the prosecutor had no evidence to bring Khalif to trial. Five days after his 20th birthday, Khalif was set free. But permanent damage was done. Khalif tried to make the most of his freedom. He passed the GED on his first attempt, enrolled at Bronx Community College, earned 11 credits and maintained a 3.56 GPA, which I think would make any mama proud. He also got a job at the college tutoring students who were preparing to take the GED. He wrote a research paper about the mental health risks associated with solitary confinement. He made efforts to help provide for his mother and his family. But the demons loomed large. Khalif spent much of his time pacing in the bedroom of his childhood home. He struggled with anxiety, paranoia, and low self-esteem. In an interview for The New Yorker, Khalif told the reporter, before I went to jail, I didn't know about a lot of stuff. And now that I'm aware I'm paranoid, I feel like I was robbed of my happiness. Despite Khalif's best efforts to recover from the profound trauma of his wrongful imprisonment and subsequent abuse, the anxiety, fear, and paranoia ultimately got the best of him. On June 6, 2015, Khalif hung himself in his childhood home. He broke the rules, and he paid with his life. Caliphs is a devastating and difficult story, and it is not unique. There are those living and walking among us who are vulnerable, and when their number gets called, we feed them to the machine. They might struggle with mental illness or have nowhere to sleep at night or stare down the choice of stealing or starving. They might look like someone we think is our enemy, or life may have led them down a path where they are just alone, without anyone left to speak for them. And so they are disappeared into the belly of the beast and we either convince ourselves that their consumption was just or perhaps worse, we don't even notice they're gone. Jesus won the ultimate displeasure of the people by preaching against these exact same abuses of power. The Roman government taxing nearly all of its citizens into a state of permanent abject poverty and church leaders fighting to preserve religious law through sanctimony in lieu of caring for the sick, the hungry, the poor, and the unclean. After all, people whose most fervent prayer is for their daily bread and forgiveness of their debts pray so because they live with the constant threat of going hungry and falling behind on what they owe. It's an uncomfortably familiar dynamic. Jesus poses such a threat to the social order that his own community chooses to release a convicted lawbreaker back into its midst, clamoring instead for the death of a man whose only crime was daring to proclaim that as a people, we can do better. After all, Jesus came not to condemn the world to prison, but to save it. He came to break the rules, but we told Jesus right to his face that we like the world the way it is. So where is the hope? Admittedly, the light at the end of this tunnel often feels to me like it is flickering. In fact, I've struggled so much to find a meaningful ending to this sermon that a few weeks ago, I asked God to please show me the hope. And God is very funny. Because last Saturday, I received a letter from Dennis a Texas inmate living in solitary confinement. I'd written this man almost two years ago and only once as part of a group effort to send letters to prisoners. I remember selecting his index card specifically because of his last name. Here's an excerpt from his letter. I want to sincerely thank you and each and every person that reached out to a prisoner I don't know how you got my name, but that is irrelevant. The Lord put it on your heart to reach out to those incarcerated, and that's what really matters. I've been in isolation for over 22 years, and it's by the grace of God I have maintained my sanity. It's acts like these that remind me that no matter where I am, I'm not forgotten, and God's love cannot be stopped by any barriers. God has made my life have meaning and truly given me hope. Gotta hand it to God, sometimes the Lord just doesn't really dance around it. And I realized that while hope sometimes comes from the most unexpected places, a prison cell in Texas, other times hope is sitting right in front of me. And it's you, it's us, it's our ability to care about someone we've never even met, to grieve the death of a stranger, to write or visit someone who's been forgotten, Hope is the freedom we have to forge real friendships with people who aren't like us. To understand that each of us is greater than the worst thing we've ever done, thank God. And hope is being brave enough to tell the story, even when the story is painful or scary, or we feel like we're the only ones telling it. After all, where might we all be today if the disciples hadn't told the story? Christians today can call the crucifixion day Good Friday because we are fortunate enough to know the rest of the story. The penitence of Lent and the solemnity of Holy Week are tempered already in our hearts by the radiant glory of the Easter morning we know is coming. But in those terrifying earliest days, when declaring yourself a follower of Jesus was essentially writing, I'm with the executed revolutionary on your tunic, the disciples were brave enough to tell the story. And they were wise enough to stay friends with each other. And they were open-minded enough to forge friendships with other people from unlikely places who were not the same as them, but who wanted to hear the story. And so when they were put to death for their beliefs or when the system disappeared them, people noticed. And they spoke up for one another. And more and more, tol- more and more people told the stories that we are still telling today. And when the New Yorker told Khalif Browder's story in 2015, New York City legislators unanimously voted that same year to end solitary confinement for prisoners younger than age 21. Hope comes from telling the stories. And change comes from hearing and believing them. I am very grateful for the chance to share these stories with you today, and I hope you might choose to share one with someone else. For me, I look forward to writing Dennis a letter and telling him I had the chance to preach his beautiful words to an inviting and welcoming church community. In fact, I'd like to read the final passage of his letter as a closing prayer, if you'll please join me. I'm reminded every day that where I'm at is God's plan, and I'm to utilize it. That helps me to grow in his word, be encouraged, and keep moving forward. Prayer is a powerful tool, and I use it daily. I've enclosed a card I made to thank y'all for the extension of thoughts and prayers you shared with me. It's not much, but it comes with sincerity and the hope that each of y'all continue to grow in Christ, be kind to our fellow man, and enjoy the many blessings God gives us daily. May God bless you all. Dennis Hope, Amen.